So as you're uh, flipping to Acts chapter 21, uh, this is going to be a big kind of a big narrative chunk. And so the way that I want to handle this is I just kind of I want to walk through it and I'm going to read big chunks and um, and then just make a couple of uh, oh by the way comments that don't really fit with the main point, but I think they're important that we address uh, very briefly. And then I want to kind of get to the the meat of things. And and here's the here's the big issue at hand with this chunk. Like as we're um, looking at Acts chapter 21, uh, this is one of the passages where we actually wonder where there's a lot of debate over whether um, Paul uh, acts appropriately in this section. So up until now, like in the book of Acts, we've seen just victory after victory really for Paul. He is unquestionably faithful in so many places. He is, he is brave. He is sensitive to the Spirit. He preaches the gospel. We've seen him be broken out of prisons. We've seen him um, released. We've seen him uh, uh, preach the gospel in front of a lot of opposition. And every time we've looked at him and said like, okay, he's, look, at, look at Paul. What a model of, of obedience and trust in the Spirit. And we have this weird section here now. It's different. We're going to see Paul actually um, go against what other people are counseling him to do. To go against what they, um, seemingly go against what people are saying through prophecy and through listening to the Holy Spirit. He's rejecting warnings and moving forward. And we are going to ask the question of, like, why would Paul do this? Is, is, is Paul wrong in, in how he functions? Because he can be. I mean, that, let's, let's pause for a second and say, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a narrative book. Okay, so this is, meaning this is telling the story of the early church. Not everything we see in the book of Acts are things that we should then automatically turn into a command or an absolute. It's a description of what is happening in the church. And so as we look here in Acts chapter 21, let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help, that you would give us discernment here this morning. I pray, God, that we would see beautiful things in your word, that we would understand with renewed minds, and that we would see how it is good news, and we would love that. And God, that our lives would be a reflection of the truth and the beauty that we see here. We need you to do that work in us, God. We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 21. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So notice what's happening is Paul has made it, set up his mind that he is going to go to Jerusalem. And he makes this stop. And anywhere he stops, he's encouraging the disciples. And when he stops here, the disciples are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Verse 5, when our days there were ended... We departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. 
Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So a second time. People are prophesying and saying to Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. Don't go. And Paul answered in verse 13, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased And said, let the will of the Lord be done. So regardless of these warnings, Paul is set on going to Jerusalem. There's nothing anyone can say about it. And we have to ask the question, is Paul being stubborn? Is he being foolhardy? Is he not listening to the Spirit? Is he not receiving the wise counsel of people who love him and love Jesus? Well, let's see. So he goes to Jerusalem knowing that suffering awaits him. And immediately when he's there, he runs into an issue. It says in verse, uh, verse 17, When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Okay, so what is going on here? Immediately, he's met with an issue. He tells them all the incredible things that have happened, all of his missionary journeys, everything that we've read up to this point in Acts, and probably more stories he shares with them, and they rejoice. But there's a problem. And the problem is what James and the others are saying to, him, to Paul is, hey, love all that stuff that's going on, but here's the issue. There are a lot of Jews who have come to believe, and they are faithful Jews. Don't forget, when people came to Christ, the Jews that came to Christ, they, they weren't converting to a different religion. They just saw Christ as the Messiah, and so they were still working through, like, what does this mean for the law? And so they are zealous for the law. They are still zealous about following God and following God's law. And they have heard rumors that Paul is ministering to the Gentiles and telling them, you don't need to follow the law anymore. 
It's not important anymore. Now we know that this is ridiculous. We know because we see the letters of Paul and how he encourages them and that it's not, it's not that they just um, get rid of it altogether, but the idea that Christ has fulfilled the law. He's not discarding it. He's saying like Christ has fulfilled it for you, so trust in him. But they're making these accusations nonetheless. And, and, and interestingly, they're the same accusations that were made of Jesus. So how could they not see that? How could James and the other brothers not see that the accusations that were being made of Paul were the exact same accusations that the Pharisees had made of Jesus? Was there no one there? Nobody there that was like, oh, hey, this, this kind of sounds familiar. Anybody? But instead, they have a plan to deal with it. And their plan is this, in verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. I could go into detail here about what this process was and what this vow was to be taken, but this is a ceremonial law and an observance of purification. And what their big plan is, okay, here's the deal, Paul. These people are accusing you of these things. we'll, We'll show them that you are not teaching these things by having you do this observance of the law. Look what they're doing. They're compromising. It's like a political agreement. They're saying, okay, we're going to accept the Gentiles and tell them just to abstain from these things, but you meet us part way and let's appease the crowd here and make sure they know you're not really against the law. So we're going to have you do this. Now, this is the point where we might normally, like we don't know how this ends. We don't know what Paul does. You might say, well, Paul's not having that. Paul's going to like stand up and tell them no. Like he confronted Peter about his behavior in this right. Like surely he's going to stand there and he's going to speak up against them and say, I'm not going to do that because I'm under Christ, not under the law. But he doesn't. He does it. Why? I've got some thoughts here, but let me answer that really as clearly as I can. Why does Paul do it I don't know that's the that's the spoiler alert okay this is a narrative book like we got to be careful and got to be clear in what the Bible's clear in and the one things that are not that we're not sure we, we need to be careful about just jumping to conclusions about it but I do have some thoughts here some believe that Paul was just flat out in sin here some believe that right here Paul um, compromised the gospel and gave in to the law and denied the gospel of grace. Others believe he wasn't in sin, that there's nothing sinful about what he did. It was just unwise. Because as we talked about weeks ago, you can't reason with the mob. And this is a mob that has accused him of these things. And either of those are possible. 
But I think what's going, what might be going through Paul's mind here is what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He ends up saying, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Bottom line is, I think what Paul I think Paul's probably conflicted. But he trusts the elders in this situation and he doesn't make it about himself but about reaching people by whatever means possible as long as it is faithful to God. Trying to find common ground for the unity of the church. Think about all the things Paul has written about the unity of the church. This is difficult. Just as an aside, it's difficult to know that when questions are being raised, when people are pushing back on, on our faith or on different positions in the church and to say like, okay, is this, is this something that we can stay unified around or is this crossing a line where we, we need to break fellowship? This is challenging. It's hard. I have struggled with this all like over the last couple of decades of ministry, but no more so than the last six years or so just seems like situation after situation after situation of people one group saying like no this is a line in the sand like we cannot like you got to break fellowship if you're going to be asked to compromise on this and another side saying like hey we need to have unity like we can just we can compromise in all of these ways like every where we turn it seems like this is case and we see Paul sometimes making that compromise and other times not But I do think that he probably knew what the end result of this was and that it wasn't going to be unity. Because predictably, it does not appease the mob. It can be tempting to think if we just change like one thing that it's going to make everybody happy. If I just give on this ground, well then they'll, they'll be satisfied and then they'll see. And that's what the, the leaders in the church were saying. Like if you just do this one thing, Paul, then, then they'll all see. They'll see clearly. But remember what we said a few weeks ago about the mob? Like a mob mentality? What they say the problem isn't actually the problem? And we see that here, right? They say, well, our problem is Paul is rejecting the law. And so the elders say, okay, well, let's deal with that. Paul, like, do this to show them that you're still, you still are teaching the law and value the law. And they look at that and they say, nope, still hate him. Because it wasn't about the law. It wasn't about their love for God or their love for the law. It was about their hatred for Paul and the Gentiles and their jealousy of what was going on and their need to be seen as right. Always be careful of people whose number one priority is being seen as right. So they were dead set against him and there was nothing that he could say or do that would change that. 
then he goes on in, in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So the one aside is that mob mentality and realizing that like, that doesn't appease the mob. And then we also see this going on for Paul. Is he's now being falsely accused. I mean, they literally say, while he's observing the law, look, here's this guy who doesn't observe the law. He's teaching everybody else to not observe the law. And they do not respond rationally. They don't say, hey, wait, but he's doing the whole thing right now. They just are stirred up. And they level a false accusation. What do they give as evidence? They saw him with a Gentile and supposed he must have taken him into the temple. It's just false accusations, rumors, gossip. No, no bearing. They didn't say like, and they saw him take him into the temple. It was like they just assumed. They saw him in Jerusalem with this Gentile as a brother. They assumed he must have taken him into the temple. This is a good place, just kind of as an aside, to say this for our church. As more people are added to Christ's family here, as we see God moving in really powerful ways here, the enemy will attack in many ways. And one of his favorite ways to, cr- to attack is to create division. And one of his favorite ways to create division is through supposing and assumptions and people filling in the blanks. So I just want to give that caution. If you ever hear something that concerns you about you know, what we are teaching or how we're doing ministry or how finances are, are being handled or anything else, please, please come and talk to us. If you come and talk to us, I still maintain that anybody that's ever brought a concern to us, to the elders, they've been met with nothing but respect and gentleness. We don't always agree, but we understand the question. We'll seek to understand the question and to help gain understanding. And sometimes we hear the question and we think, oh, you're right. That, that, we probably should switch up how we do that or we should change that. And other times we think, well, I understand that concern, but this is what we're pursuing in this. We hold everything open. This church has always been very open when it, with its finances and with everything else. Like that's the way that we want to function. And so if you do that, anytime you hear that, then you can you can help kind of quell anything that would be of the enemy because no matter what happens, no matter how much we are pursuing Jesus together, there will always be those who seek to divide. There will always be sheep who are led astray by wolves and there will always be wolves. And the best way to deal with those situations is to flood the situation with light. 
In my experience, when light is shed on it, predictably, people who are genuine in their searching are, are satisfied and, and can move forward, and those who have a mob mentality and had their minds already made up are not. So please, talk to us. Verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, and all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! So they, they arrest him. Shockingly, they can't figure out what's going on be, um, for, by asking the mob. Like, could have, could have probably guessed that. Like, just imagine these soldiers are being like, hey, what's going on here? And all they hear is just all this shouting. And so an uproar is happening. And remember that Rome's big concern is always uprisings. They could give, they don't care at all about who you worship or anything like that, really. What they really care about is just keeping some form of peace and no uprising and no rebellions. And so when they see that this is happening and the entire city is in confusion, they arrest Paul and they end up having to carry him because of the violence of the crowd. And this, like getting to this place right here, this is where there are some whose theology says this. This is proof that Paul was disobedient. Because if Paul would have listened. If he would have listened back in Tyre, if he would have listened to Agabus, he would have never been in this situation in the first place. He wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. He would have gone somewhere else and would have preached the gospel somewhere else and probably started other churches. But no, he didn't listen to wise counsel. And there are some who would even preach that as the point. That's why you listen to wise counsel. If you don't, you're going to end up being carried away by a mob. And then when he did come to Jerusalem, if he wouldn't have compromised the gospel by shaving his head, if at that point he would have made a stance for the elders, then the elders surely would have said to him, okay, if you're not going to do that, let's get you out of here because this mob is not going to be satisfied by that. They're not going to be reasoned with in that way. And so let's get you out of there. And again, plan B, like God would have given it, gave him another out where he could have gone somewhere else, somewhere safe, and not have this happen. But as it is, he ends up in this situation because he was foolhardy, stubborn, and did not listen to wise counsel. Why is that the assumption? I think there's a big reason why that's the assumption. Because many times in our culture, we assume that if the road is hard, then it must not be God's will. 
There's popular theology that will tell you that the way you know if you are in the center of God's will is by how good things are around you, by the blessings that are around you. The earthly blessings is usually what we mean in that. We think, in short, that if we are faithful, if we live the right way according to God's word, then he will reward us with earthly blessings. And that feeling has been around for a very long time. In Luke 9, we have a very similar situation that Jesus is dealing with. And see if you see the similarities with Paul. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Sound familiar? That parallel right there? Jesus is saying, like, no, I'm, I'm setting my face towards Jerusalem. That is the road that I'm on. And he tells them, I'm on this road. And he says then in verse 57 about this road, he says, as they were going along this road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is making a statement. His face is set to Jerusalem. He knows the road that he's going to be walking and that's the road he's asking his disciples to follow. And imagine if they knew. I mean, that's, that's even before they knew what that road looked like. Jesus knew what this road looked like, and he's preparing them for this. Hey, if you think that following me on this road is going to mean that you're going to reign with me in some kind of earthly kingdom, and there's going to come a day where you're just going to sit around a table and eat grapes and have just like an easy life, and this is just the hard path to that, let me tell you something. That is not the way the kingdom is going to work here. And he began to teach them. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And what is Peter's response? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. It shall never happen to you. We've mentioned this before, but if you ever find yourself in a position where you're rebuking Jesus, maybe take a step back, right? Maybe just slow down a second and maybe just think about that a little bit longer. Anytime you hear the words of Jesus and you're like, no, absolutely not. That is not the way the world works. Maybe just take a step back and think about that. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
They could not comprehend why Jesus would willingly walk into Jerusalem if he knew that that's what awaited him. Is he just quitting? Is he just giving up? But here's the thing. His disciples, Paul's friends, and us, we all have this in common. We gravitate toward the idea that the road to obedience to God should be marked with earthly blessing. We may say differently, but often in the deep quietness of our heart, we think that's the way it should be, and so that's the way it is. And we often determine how well we listen to God based on how well things go. Which is why we always cite those examples of like, well, I had this moment, and then look at how, how great this turned out. My, my Aunt Cheris and Uncle Joe had a really good life in a small town in Iowa. They were well thought of. Their kids were successful. They had a great business. And then they felt like the Lord was calling them to adopt. Okay. But then they felt like the Lord was calling them to adopt a set of four siblings because they wanted to keep them together. Four siblings who'd been through unimaginable things. And then down the road, they felt like God was calling them to adopt another set of three siblings. And they sold their business and sold their home and moved to an acreage and built a house to take care of these seven kids. I was amazed at the faith of my aunt and my uncle. And I thought, man, these kids' lives are going to be changed forever. But there's a lot of criticism in my extended family of them of saying, like, what are you doing? You're ruining your life. Like, you had such a good life. Why would you do that? And not long after they moved to this acreage, and they were, while, they, while my uncle was working on the house, he suffered a brain aneurysm and died. And several of those kids that they adopted kind of never really, never really bonded with my aunt, never really understood what she had done for them. And they rebelled in all kinds of different ways. And as my aunt laid there just grieving over the loss of her husband, grief over, is everything, is anything going to work out for these kids? as they gave just headache after headache and pain after pain. And then there were people in our family who said, see, it's why you shouldn't have done this. God's punishing you because you just got out ahead of yourself. You were foolhardy. You thought this is what it looked like to be faithful and all this suffering happened. And if you had just stayed here, none of that would have happened. My aunt doesn't say that. My aunt now, years later, still believes that's exactly what God called her to, to walk this road. What if God calls you to walk a road that you know is not going to end well on earth? What if he calls you to handle your business in such a way that guarantees your business will fail? 
What if God calls you to, to change jobs, but you end up getting laid off? In the early 1900s, so many missionaries who went to Africa died there that subsequent missionaries would go and they started packing their belongings in coffins and bought one-way tickets knowing that there was only one way they were returning home. They believed this is the road. And so when I look at Paul, I say, I think Paul absolutely listened. I think Paul absolutely believed the prophecies. The prophecies were, Paul, you're going to suffer. They're going to tie you up. They're going to bind you up. They're going to put you in prison. And Paul says, I know. I'm ready. And then he says, like, he's weeping. Like, why are you breaking my heart? Why? Because they're distracting him from it. He knows that Jesus said, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. And he's like, stop breaking my heart with this. I know that this is what's going to happen. But I know it's the road. A few weeks ago, we talked about doing ministry that was worth fighting exhaustion for, worth every ounce of our energy and time and money. But what is worth your life? Paul knew what was worth his life. And his response is, I'm ready. Now, we've said multiple times, because we're sitting there thinking like, oh, this is really heavy. Yeah, it is, but this is God's word. A common theme over the last few weeks has been to look at the book of Acts and the, Paul, the letters that Paul wrote and use them as a diagnostic. Because we're so quick to dismiss passages like this and say, well, not everyone is asked to do that. Like, not everyone is called to like, go be a missionary overseas and pack their belongings in a coffin in a one-way ticket. Are you saying, like, that's required, that, like, everybody has to do that, or that somehow people who do that are more loved by God? And no, that's not the question we're asking. I would just say that that kind of deflection is used often to guard our hearts from asking the real question, right? Because if you can hear that story about my aunt and say like, well, I'm not adopting seven children, I'd say that's probably wise, right? But if you use that to deflect from the question that the Holy Spirit is actually wanting to ask you, that's where the problem comes in. The diagnostic question is what kind of a faith allows for that? Do I have that kind of a faith? Or maybe a better question, what kind of king is worthy of this kind of sacrifice? Right, because one of the questions that we might ask is, well, how do you know then? If it's not by blessing, like how do you know you're actually on the right road? Well, maybe, maybe one way to know that you're on the right road is to ask if Jesus is on it. And to know that he's actually on the road with you and has actually walked it before. Do you notice what the mob yelled when Paul's being carried away? Away with him. Does that sound familiar to anybody? An angry mob yelling after falsely accusing someone 
and when the government is actually trying to protect him, saying, like, what are you, what are you, what's going on? Like, what are these charges or whatever? And they scream, away with him. Just like they did to Jesus. So think about this. Paul sets his face to Jerusalem, just like Jesus. He's welcomed at first, just like Jesus. False accusations are made of him, just like Jesus. And the crowds call for his death, just like Jesus. So one way to know if you're on the right road is to ask, is Jesus on it? Is this a road that he has walked? Is this a road he's asked me to walk? As he said, follow me. Now, if you find yourself on a hard road that Jesus is not on, because many of us, all of us, have walked hard roads that are of our own doing, right? Every single one of us has walked hard roads because we have been disobedient to God. And the, and the, the consequences of that and the, and the pain that goes around that, we have no one to blame it but ourselves. But on those roads, we look around and we're like, I don't know where Jesus is because this is not the road that he's on. This is not what he asked me. I know that I went down this road of my own desire and my own will. And so if you're on that road, get off that road. But if you find yourself on a hard road and Jesus is near, do not be afraid. Do not let it fill you with questions of like, well, is this my fault? Did I cause this? Did I like not have enough faith? This is the call to follow him. So this must be what Jesus meant when he told them to count the cost. Or when he asked his disciples, are you willing to drink the cup that I drink? But it's only those for whom the kingdom is a treasure hidden in a field that will actually follow. Paul is one of those people. And the call is the same for you and me. Now it may end differently than it did with Paul or with my aunt or with those other missionaries. But it's the same question. Do I see the king as worthy? Do I believe him? Or do I hedge my bets following him as long as he makes my road easier? If you believe, then die to yourself. Decide this day that your identity is Christ. Take the step that the Holy Spirit is calling you to take. Whatever road you are called to walk, Jesus walked it first. And he already completed it for you. And so as you walk that road, you don't have to prove yourself faithful along that road. Why? Because he's already been faithful to you. That phrase that we say, that he lived the life we could not live, includes that obedience to him that we try and we fall and we try and we fall and we get back up and he renews us day by day and forms us from one degree of glory to another. But all the while knowing that Jesus walked this road in front of me, he already completed it for me and now he is with me. Many of you have been pushed out of your comfort zones and have seen God do incredible things. 
Maybe you also have been in situations where you felt like God was calling you to something, but you retreated because you were scared. We're so often dominated by thoughts of what if. Well, if I take that step, what's going to happen? If I invite that family over, what, what happens if, it's, if it becomes more than I can handle? If I put myself out there, what if God puts me in a position that's overwhelming? If I start to give financially, what happens if we run out of money? And I understand all of those fears, but there are very simple answers to them. One, you will always feel that way when you are doing what God has called you to, because God will always create an environment where you need to be aware of your dependency on him. It's not loving any other way. How loving would it be if God said to you, oh no, you can totally do it on your own. How's that going to hold up on judgment day? It's not. We need to find ourselves hidden in him. And so he will constantly put us in situations where we realize we need him. Also, he is a good father. When you are afraid of what he's calling you to do, remember that that's just the, that's the calling, but also remember he is good. We've mentioned before this pretty recently, but many of us act as though God is this overbearing boss who just keeps asking and asking and demanding and demanding, and that we have to protect ourselves from him. We need to balance things. We need to create some boundaries with God because otherwise he's just going to run rampant all over my entire life. If I don't create some space for just some me time, then God is just going to run roughshod over everything. And I, so I got to protect myself. I'm totally willing to do some things for him, but I need to protect myself. That is not our God. He is not an overbearing boss. He is a good father who wants you to share in the joy of his kingdom and will not withhold a single ounce of blessing from you. And he will give you grace for the moment. How many times have you looked at what somebody else has gone through and thought, I could never do that. I could never have that much faith. I could never walk that road. Yes, you can, and he will give you grace in the moment to do it. In the great book, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, it's about a, a Christian family's involvement in the escape and the protection of Jews during World War II. Corey writes this about a conversation with her father. She said, Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Corey, he began gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? She said, I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. This is how our God operates. And I know when I look around this room that there's story after story after story of people saying, I didn't think I could do that. And just when I needed it, God gave a measure of grace, grace upon grace upon grace to deal with the moment in front, the step right in front. Not steps, three steps down the road, or even two steps down the road, but one step. This is what he did in the wilderness when God's people were wandering in the wilderness. Day by day, they were not allowed to gather more food than that day's worth. Why? Because every day they needed to be reminded, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus reminds us. 
That is the calling. By the way, that's why the opposite is also true, that many people think they'll be found faithful, but they're relying on their own self-righteousness. So they say, yes, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And those are often the people who fall, like Peter. Peter was willing to die for Jesus, willing to fight for Jesus. He thought he could rescue Jesus. But then, when Jesus was arrested, what happened? He cowered at the accusation of a little girl. See, overconfidence in our own strength and lack of dependency on God leads to destruction. But humility about our own abilities, confidence in God's grace to meet us there in that moment, that is a recipe for joy. That's why our grand gestures of commitment often fall flat. But a step-by-step faithful obedience to Jesus for today, that brings joy. And that is the road that Paul walked. And he knew that he could do it, not because of his own strength. Because remember, he had persecuted the church, but as he said in 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So what about you? What is that moment? What is that next step? I don't know. I wish I could tell you. And I'm always hesitant to give examples because then people will be like, nope, not that, not that. Like, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Maybe the next step is to start giving knowing it's going to be uncomfortable, but you can trust God and he will give you the grace you need in the moment. Maybe the next step is to meet with people in community, to go to an area lunch or to reach out and invite somebody over for dinner, to just put yourself out there, to offer help to a family in need. You don't know how it's going to fit in your calendar. You don't know what's going to happen next sports season or if you can continue into that, but you're going to be faithful in this moment right now. Maybe it's joining Welcomed, It's the ministry that we we have to surround families who foster and adopt. We have an incredible opportunity right now as the Lovenecks are are here this morning just back with their um, new baby they just adopted. And it's an opportunity to say, okay, I'm I'm in. Like, I want to help them. Or maybe for you it is to take that step of fostering a child. Or maybe... It's taking the step of accepting the road that God has put you on that you did not choose. But trusting him that he is going to bring deep joy in your life and deep trust in him. Because anything worthy is worthy of discomfort. Our God is a good father and he will give you the right measure of grace at the right time. And the great irony is this, that it is the scariest road, the scariest roads at first that are the path to true freedom. It is the path to life, to joy inexpressible, peace inexplicable, and glory inconceivable. This is what Jesus meant when he said to all, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And church, do so in freedom, knowing that it is not dependent on what you will be able to do for him, but what he has already done for you. And as he pours out grace upon grace, he will give you the right measure and the right time. Let's pray. Father, we, we do believe, but help our unbelief. God, I know that right now in this room that you are calling people to take steps of faith. And for some people in that, this room right now, there's something big that feels really big. And it's scary. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them in this moment and tell them, do not be afraid. That they would believe that, Jesus, you have already walked the road for them. And you will walk it with them. But, Lord, I also pray for those who are not deterred by fear, but are deterred because they think that the step of faith that you're giving them right now isn't that big. It doesn't seem, it's not as big as packing a coffin full of your belongings and purchasing a one-way ticket. It's not as big as adopting children. Lord, I pray that you would speak through that and that we would be reminded that in the kingdom, small things become big things and that what we are called to do is to take the step of faith that you have in front of us whether that's to go across the world or just to go across this room to encourage someone this morning. Or to invite somebody out for coffee. Or to pray for somebody at work. Whatever that is, Lord, I pray that we would know that the road you have called us to it may be marked with suffering, but what we know is the road you have called us to is marked with joy. Joy that cannot be explained and joy that one day will come to complete fruition. And we praise your name for this. Amen.